Hey, I don't know about you guys, but me, I've had it up to here. There are some 40-odd homicides a day on our streets. There are over 2 million illegal guns in this city. Man, that's enough guns to invade a whole damn country with. They shoot a cop in our city without even thinking twice about it. Oh, come on. I mean, you guys ride the subway. How much more of this grief we're gonna stand for? How many more locks we gotta put on our goddamn doors? I'm telling you. You can't go to the corner and buy a pack of cigarettes after dark because you know the punks and the scum on the street when the sun goes down and our own government can't protect its own people, then I say this, pal. You got a moral obligation. The right of self-preservation. Now you can run. You can hide. You can start to live like human beings again. You want your city back? Fought in the war, giving his all for his country, only to return home to an unappreciative America falling apart at the seams due to crime and injustice. When he was finally pushed too far, he waged a war of his own, seeking justice against the scum on the street who killed his wife, slash raped his daughter, slash crippled his best friend. Today on Slums of Film History, we'll be discussing a specific character trope that had a dominant role in 70s and 80s cinema, the vigilante veteran. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and schools the other. We discuss everything from Satanists to avenging hookers to castration. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey, Slate. Hi, Tom. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Good. Another great episode, I hope. I'm really... I'm excited for this one. I know nothing about this, as usual, so... Well, good. I hope that I've seen one or two of these movies. I think you've seen more than you probably think you have, so it should be fun. All right. Did you have something you wanted to talk about? It's not really that great. So I was really hungover last weekend. Big surprise. Yeah, I've heard this story before. And I was like, oh, I'm going to like lie in bed and watch movies all day. And I realized that, so, you know, Troma has its own YouTube channel. I didn't know that. Of where they show all of their movies it's for amazing. free. It's not all of them, but, but you know, they kind of like periodically will put like new ones up. Uh-huh. Um, so I watched Class of Newcomb High. Nice. From our episode on Toxic Waste. I watched The Toxic Avenger, which is also on there. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen that since, you know, the late 80s. But it's they also while, yeah. had this movie that was like a sex romp. Like most of the Troma movies or like violence or whatever. Oh, wow. They had a sex romp movie called, I had to write it down, I keep forgetting the name, The First Turn On. Oh, I never heard of that one. It was so stupid. It was kind of, <laughs> I think it was like their attempt at kind of like doing like an American Pie type of movie. Yeah. Um, but it was great. It was actually a really very pleasant day, even though I was like throwing up in a trash can um, beside my bed most of the day. But anyway, right. so I now, thank you for your episode on Toxic Waste, but now I know a lot more about Toxic Waste since I uh, got to watch all those movies for free. So Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So was this one of their earlier movies? Was this like a when they were first starting out or is this? 
was like the recent. first turn on. No, it seemed. I mean, it seems kind of like I didn't look at the the year, but I think it was kind of like the. It seemed like about the mid to late nineties, kind of like maybe even like the early two thousands. Okay, so it was a not latter being that that's seventeen years ago, but I mean, as far as the well known trauma movies, it's on the latter end of the. Correct. That's okay. what I think. Okay, cool. I based that off nothing, but that's what I think. Well, I will say throwing up in a trash can is probably the best. I think trauma would be proud of you for yeah. watching their movie. No, in that I, condition. Fe- I felt like it went well together. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there you go. You mentioned that you don't really know much about today's episode, although I, I think you'll notice a lot of the themes, and you'll, you've definitely probably seen more of these movies, I think, than you realize you have. So it's Vigilante Veterans, mm-hmm. it's, and this is sort of like a spiritual sequel to last season's Hooker Vengeance. Mm-hmm. My argument in that episode was that I was saying Hooker Vengeance movies are like a micro genre that's actually i think that they were mm-hmm. you disagree with me correct and as as much as it hurts for me to, to admit it i think you're right uh-huh. i think hooker vengeance movies aren't necessarily a micro genre but that character is a trope agreed well rev- i mean revenge movies are a thing um, there that would be a, a sub genre as hookers as the protagonist there's not enough and they're too varied for it to be like a steady thing right i agreed with you on that approaching this one i think vigilante veterans being that it's someone who's taken the law in their own hands and they were a veteran of a war or whatever. There's a lot of those characters in these movies and I focused on that, but there's not enough of them to say, oh, I'm going to get the vigilante veteran subgenre. There's vigilante okay. movies. Sure. There's vigilante movies, of course, and that's a subgenre, but you know, the fact that having someone who's a war vet being the protagonist of that movie, there's not enough of them. But it's a, it's sort of a trend and it's an interesting one to me and we'll definitely get into that. One caveat before we start also I'm trying not to focus so much on something like PTSD, which comes up as part of these characters because they're war vets and things like that. And that certainly factors into some of these movies. But I I didn't want to turn this into a how PTSD is shown on film kind of thing. And so I'm sad. Well, that and it's just I'm not really qualified to talk about it. You know, there's plenty of other resources that can really address that topic. And even how it's presented in pop culture. Yeah, I don't think people come to slums of film history to get like medical diagnosis. (laughs) Right. Or to really discuss you know, very heady topics like that. So these touch on that, and it does play a part in in this podcast, but it's definitely not the focus. Gotcha. All right. So as I previously said, vigilante films, that's a Mm subgenre. There's plenty of those. And that's a a genre of film or subgenre of film that goes back all the way to silent era, believe it or not. Um, Yeah, most of those, actually all of those movies at that time frame were Westerns, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because if you look at the definition of vigilante, it's defined as a civilian or organization acting in a law enforcement capacity Mm -hmm. in the pursuit of self-perceived justice without legal authority. Okay. So, you know, you're talking about the Wild West and, you know, there's a lot of lawlessness going on out there. Well, people that are taking the law into their own hands. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of these vigilante movies uh, that came out. And some early examples, I've got some titles here for you. Oh, good. So you get the idea. Mm-hmm. So you've got Bronco Billy and the Vigilante, 1915. The Vigilantes, 1918. Uh-huh. Very literal. Um, the Vigilantes are coming, 1936. Mm-hmm. The Purple Vigilantes, a.k.a. the Three Mesquite Tears. Get it? Mesquite Tears, I guess, because it's out west. Mesquite. Oh, like Mesquite. Mesquite. Yeah, I thought that was funny. And that's from 1938. Border Vigilantes, 41. Mm-hmm. Lone Star Vigilantes, 42. Vigilantes Ride. Um, Vigilante's Return. Uh, you get Vigilante so Hideout. That's a thing. Okay. The, yeah. So clearly these that movies are about That was a word vigil- that, that sold that was, tickets. It yeah. sold tickets. And mm-hmm. it was Westerns. And again, it was about, you know, people taking the law in their own hands to tame the frontier or fuck sure. it, whatever. So these have been around before. But the ones that um, I'm talking about are really the ones that take place in the 70s. Okay. It's a very specific 70s urban vigilante mm-hmm. are the ones I'm talking about. But probably if we're talking about a vigilante movie, I'm going to go back real quick. As far as a vigilante Western, probably the most famous 
semi-modern one is The Searchers from 1956. Okay. That's John, John Wayne. Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. And that was directed by John Ford. It was based on a 1954 novel. And it's set during the Texas Indian Wars. And so John Wayne is a middle-aged civil... He's a Civil War veteran. So he's actually... So this is a, an example of a vigilante vet. He plays a Civil War veteran and, of course, the fallout from Did the war. Did you see me just trying to, like, figure out what wars are, like, in my head? I'm like, okay, Civil War. That right. was the one. Yeah. That this, was, yeah. I'm going to be no help to you on that this That was episode. the one that George Washington fought Hannibal. Right. So anyway, so, again, John Wayne plays a Civil War veteran, and he's hunting after his uh, niece who's been abducted. It's played by Natalie Wood. Mm-hmm. She was abducted by some Native Americans, so he's going out to hunt them down and get her back. And, you know, he's racist, and he's an asshole, sure, and, sure. you know, it's it, he deals a lot about his prejudices, but also just with the the West and I think the fallout and kind of his life after the war. But it, it does touch on a lot of the vigilante vet tropes, the ones that I'll be speaking on, and that, you know, he's a war vet. His people in his family were killed or victimized, and he's going after to get justice slash payback. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he's got a lot of emotional baggage to go yeah. along with it. And it's important because this basic plot follows almost all the vigilante veteran movies that come after it. So th- let's talk about the 70s, as I said. Most of these take place in the 70s, and it's probably the best time for vigilante vet movies, vigilante movies in general, but one's dealing with that trope that I'm speaking of. Because look at the 70s. Okay, the 60s are over. Everyone's disillusioned. Mm-hmm. Vietnam was fucked up. Uh, you've got Watergate. Everybody, it was just that big come down. And on the other side of that, crime was rising. And right. especially in, in major metropolitan urban areas like New York, mm-hmm. which is, if you'll notice, New York is the setting for a lot of these movies. But I think... Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me either. So this type of disillusionment, this type of cynicism would work its way into cinema. And we've used other examples in other podcasts of that 70 eras filmmaking and other genres. But here... It definitely played a part. And I'm going to talk about the first notable vigilante vet movie. It was a film called Billy Jack from 1971. Sounds familiar. I'm going to take this right foot and I'm going to whop you on that side of your face. And you want to know something? There's not a damn thing you're going to be able to do about it. Really? It's funny, isn't it? How everybody in town's afraid of you. But I guess it's a good thing they are. Because if they weren't, they'd hurt the school a lot more than they do now. They'll kill you, Billy. An Indian isn't afraid to die. Don't ever expect a white man to understand that. Hey, Billy! So Billy Jack is about a quote-unquote half-breed American Navajo Indian who's also a Green Beret Vietnam vet mm-hmm. and master of martial arts, of course. And his character is a soldier who's, he's got, he's, once he gets out of the military, he's got a very anti-war stance. Okay. And he ends up like defending this hippie themed, like freedom school and students that are in this school from like townspeople who like don't understand or like counterculture students. Okay. It's kind of a, these early vigilante event movies were against the man. Like they're against like the, you know, and it's a very, it's that very, that whole like, the hippie counterculture against the straights. Sure, sure. And it, and, it, and it sort of was filtered into this vigilante vet movie. So this guy comes back to the war. He's highly trained. He can kick ass. He can do martial arts and do like roundhouse kick people and shit. And he does in the movie. Also, is this like disillusion with the system and doesn't trust the man and all that other shit. Gotcha. So it's kind of weird and it's really r- ridiculous, actually. <laughs> I, I watched some of it and uh, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I, I watched a good chunk of it for research. So anyway, as the plot goes, Billy's ultimately taken down. Finally, the man gets him, you know, and he gets shot and he gets wounded or he gets taken away. But he's all like heralded as a folk hero. Okay, and that's sure. kind of the early theme of some of these, too. It's a very, very much a folk hero type of a hero of the people 
kind of right, thing. Right, you right. know, the guy comes back from war, fed up with the system. The man is trying to push people out or, you know, exploit people, build on their land, whatever the fuck. And then this guy comes and beats the man, but the man always wins. In the early 70s movies, like, the, the system always wins, but you're, like, this underground hero, counterculture yeah, sure. hero kind of thing. Well, no, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, listen, in order for the vigilante to win, it has to change culture as a whole, and no one's going to believe that. So the right. the reason why you go see it in the first place is because you could would kind of already sympathize with this type of thing. So yeah. it can't have a happy ending. That's no. No, no, no. That wouldn't be right. Okay, so Billy Jack was 1971, mm-hmm. as I said. So the year after that, I'm taking a, a small digression, but it's probably one of the most important things that happened to this genre, or at least to this trope. Probably one of the most important like war vet things that came in that decade. And it's a little book that came out, probably never heard of it, called First Blood. And that was written, published in 1972. Is that Rambo, First Blood? Yes. Okay. And that's a book by David Morrell. He's a thriller writer. He wrote a bunch of books. He's I, I like his writing. But that was his first novel, and it introduced the world to John Rambo, um, but a very different one than... than Rambo's the, name is John Rambo? Yeah. Oh. It I was thought just, his name was just Rambo. That's funny you said that. It was just Rambo in the book. Mm-hmm. That's all he went by, and that's all the book had him as. And he was much different than the Rambo in the, the 80s movies that I will obviously talk about as we go forward. But it's it's a lot a lot different and a lot darker, if you can imagine that. But just to give you an idea of the plot, so he's a Vietnam War vet, of course, and it's after the war, and he's hitchhiking in Kentucky, and he gets picked up by the police chief who sees him. He's got, like, scraggly hair, and he looks like a drifter, and so he gets picked up, and he gets dropped off on the city limits. He's like, we don't like people, you in this town, and he takes mm-hmm. them over there. Well, Rambo's like, fuck that, and as an act of defiance, starts coming back in the town, so he gets arrested. He's charged with vagrancy and re- resisting arrest and sentenced to jail, and being entrapped inside the cell, because he was a POW at one point, so mm-hmm. he starts kind of flashing back. That stands for prisoner of war, right? Okay. Yes. Doing I, really I forgot, good. I forgot. Yeah, you are actually you're really you're really you're really hitting out of the park. Thanks. And so then he fights off the cops and he ends up slashing somebody with a straight razor or whatever. He gets away, steals a motorcycle and he goes runs off in the woods and now he's getting hunted down. Mm -hmm. So David Morrell initially wrote this book because actually he's Canadian. The author is Canadian, but he came down in the 60s to study. When he was in college, he would meet all these other students and some were war vets and he would get their viewpoint of the war. And, And in Canada, the Vietnam War really didn't resonate as much as it right, did. Right, they were like, we don't care. Yeah, we don't care, eh? Yeah. Yeah, so that's how they talk in Canada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing he learned about were problems with them adjusting to uh, civilian life. And at the time, there really wasn't a very good system in place to deal with, you know, vets that were returning and the psychological problems they might have had. Sure. So, you know, there was this, like, post-traumatic stress stuff and, of course, difficulty with relationships. A lot of people felt like they were alone and sort of acted as loners. And the character Rambo, you know, he's he is a quintessential loner. Yeah. You know, and he just can't relate to other people. And so Morel also mentions that, you know, in 1968, there was only really two main stories on TV, Vietnam War. And then, you know, all the riots that broke out in American cities or rioting and whatnot. So seeing the two things juxtaposed, he wrote this book as a means to sort of bring that war back to the States. Sure. And it was pretty much the first time that that kind of thing was done. Mm-hmm. Anyway, real quick, like I said, Rambo is very different in the book than the movie. The narrative is different. It's actually, instead of from his point of view, it's split between him and the police chief. Okay. It's interesting because they're both war vets. So the police chief that's, you know, originally arrested him and sort of started him on his rampage was a Korean war vet. So he knew what war was about. And it, 
Korea was also sort of another forgotten war and that it happened between World War II and Vietnam and didn't get a lot of press, but it's, I mean, it was a fucked up war, mm-hmm. but there really wasn't much, you know, it seems like a footnote. And so a lot of those vets never really had a lot of attention, but so he's a, a Korean war vet and it shows his point of view and it shows Rambo's point of view. And so in a lot of ways they are both right and both wrong. So right, David right, Morrell right. wrote this as a means to say there's two sides here right. this and they're clash. Right. Sure. This isn't an easy story. It's no. the, the matters are complicated. Sure. And another thing is like Rambo kills a bunch of people in the book. Mm-hmm. which in the movie doesn't. I'll, I'll talk about that when I get to that. And also at the end of the book, spoiler, Rambo dies in the book. Oh, really? He actually gets shot by his commanding officer who shows up to try to talk him down and then he finally like shoots him at the end. Mm-hmm. Rambo's basically begging for death at that point anyway. So very bleak yeah, book, yeah. very 70s type of thing. Mm-hmm. But I bring up Rambo, though he's not a vigilante vet in the loosest terms because he's very important and that character is very important going forward, especially dealing with Vietnam vet sure. characters. So now I want to go back to films, and I want to talk about probably one of the most divisive and controversial movies of the 70s, if not at all, time. Okay. Do you know what, what it is? Uh, I feel like I'm stupid on this. Is it Taxi Driver? No. Because I, I was like, is Ta- Travis Bickle wasn't a vet, I don't think. Well, we'll talk about that. Okay. But no, uh, Death Wish from 1974. Enjoy a typical afternoon in New York City. <laughs> this is Paul Kersey. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. He begins where all the super cops leave off. Call him a mad vigilante. Call him a hero. Either way, he's always on target. Never make a death wish. Because a death wish always comes true. Is that Charles Bronson? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Death Wish is an American action film that was based on a novel, also called Death Wish. Mm-hmm. And it came out the same year as First Blood. So it's 72. Okay. The movie's from 74. Film stars Charles Bronson. He plays a character named Paul Kersey. He's a man who becomes a vigilante after his wife is murdered and his daughter is like sexually assaulted during a like a home invasion. These ki- these guys break in and do that. Actually, fun fact, one of the thugs that do that is a young Jeff Goldblum. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he's very and, um, and there's a threatening. Prob- yeah, it's I know <laughs> threatening he's, Jeff Goldblum. Well, there's even a meme I think, and it's like a line from that movie where he's like something like, "Goddamn rich cunt! I kill rich cunts!" He says that to yeah, uh-huh. c word count today. Yeah. That's Jeff Goldblum mm-hmm. plays one of those thugs. dangerous Jeff Goldblum. Right. Mm-hmm. And we all should be looking out for a dangerous. Just, <laughs> we just, I know, and any day he could break into your house. I know. And sometimes yeah. when I'm walking alone, uh, I just feel like Jeff Goldblum's eyes are on me, and that he's <laughs> just gonna jump he's out. Gonna, from I feel like he will dress building me yeah. and shank me. I, I, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. well, he kills rich cunts like me. So <laughs> exactly, yeah, fucking Jeff Goldblum, man. You never know when he's gonna show up. So, uh, so. <laughs> I totally lost my place. So anyway, okay, so Death Wish, there's a franchise. We'll talk about the franchise. So as far as the Vigilante Vet thing, yeah, so Kersey, the character, is a Korean War vet. Well, he was a Korean War medic, but he was also a conscientious objector. Okay. They, like, play that up in the movie as though he's anti-violence, and I guess this type of terrible thing that happened to him changed his worldview. Mm-hmm. And they make it a point, too, to talk about how he used to, he was a good shot, 
but he his dad was a hunter and got killed by another hunter, so he never picked up another gun again. Okay. They, they mentioned that in the scene where he starts learning how to shoot guns again. Right, right. He's like, well, I never shot him because my dad was killed and I just could never bring myself to pick up a gun. But it's all set up to show that his worldview gets changed. Uh-huh. Okay. And I think that was one of the reasons why this movie was so lambasted at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I watched it again. Because I hadn't seen it forever, and for this podcast, I decided to, to turn it on again to see yeah. what the deal was. Well, number one, it's, it, of course, it's very exploitive, but I can kind of see why a lot of people were pissed at the time and maybe even think that it's just a very fascist movie, which, I mean, look, I don't, I love violent movies. I have no problem with that. I don't even have a problem with people taking the law in their own hands, but I can see the argument here because, really, the movie sets it up to really support what he's doing. Like, it's like, they should be doing it. Right. They're saying that, okay, so let let me just make sure I understand where we are. So, so he's a vet, and you're saying that people were mad that he was kind of like, oh, I'm a veteran, I'm supposed to look good, but instead I'm going to go and start killing all these people, okay. and that's okay? No, 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 I'm using the vet just to say that it fits into this this podcast basically okay. but I think the movie why the movie was so you're controversial you're saying it glorified violence well I think it yeah I think it glorified taking the law in your own hands okay right. where the book really was according to the author who wrote the book that the movie was based on the author's intent and the, his conclusion in the book was to show that vigilantism was not the right thing to right. do right and usually like in, in super violent movies like they do something at the end like they'll put a quote from Gandhi and it'll be like violence never solves anything right 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 and so you're saying that this movie they didn't do that no no yeah, this movie yeah. totally got this was like a shoot him up, like not only that, but I mean, it was the politics were like basically. He even mentions he's like a bleeding heart liberal in, mm-hmm. in the book. I mean, in the movie, and then like then, but then he turns into like taking the law in his own hands and shooting people. Got it. Um, and I mean, he does. He goes into the subway, and luckily, it's a multi-ethnic group of people that he shoots. It's okay. not like that's nice. Yeah, yeah, so he's not like just like shooting, you know, people of certain color or, or right, race. Sure. But it's only in New York movies where you see like where all these gangs are so multi-culty. Yes, Everybody gets yes. along and. Right. These movies, even Which is the like 70s, the opposite really of what not. a gang is, kind right. of. Yeah, but it's like a Captain Planet episode gone wrong. Right. It's like yeah. It's like because it's everyone gang version of a Benetton. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, well put. That's the best way to describe it. But Death Wish was a big success, even though it was lambasted by critics and you know people said it was fascist or whatever. It found an audience, and I think it found an audience because again, it was a right film for the right time. People were fed up with crime. You know, sure, the cities yeah. were cesspool. The 70s were just a shitty time. Yeah. I mean, but that makes sense. I love a good exploitation violence yeah, movie where you're just no killing shit. people just for the shits and giggles. You know, I mean, and that's happened frequently. I remember in things like, you know, Pulp Fiction and Natural Born Killers, you know, they were they were like, we're sending the wrong message to the youth of America, which was me at the time. And I was like, no, no, the message is fine. I'm good with it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fine to kill people. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's, yeah, perfectly fine. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, one thing this movie did, though, so again, it found an audience, but I think what this movie did is that it set the stage for New York to, uh, New York became the epicenter of like urban America. Yeah, sure, sure. It represented in movies. It was like, New York is a shithole. That meant every other urban area in America was a shithole. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so New York was the stand-in. You could be from whatever state, but you could say, oh, my inner cities are just like that. Right, of course. You know, so New York... It was the poster child for, right. for shitty. And Death Wish was, I think, the first major vigilante movie that focused on New York. Now, we're going to talk more about New York, of course, but I also need to digress again because since we're on 1974, we have Death Wish. I want to also draw on another literary character. Okay. And that is Marvel Comics' The Punisher. Okay. You don't know who that is? No. You probably like him. So, Frank Castle, a.k.a. The Punisher, was a Marvel comic character who made his comic debut in 1974. 
Uh, he first appeared as a crazed vigilante in Spider-Man. So he was like sort of an antagonist to Spider-Man. Okay. He's actually presented as like one of these Spider-Man's main antagonists. He was fucking crazy. He was sort of like a bad guy. As time goes on, he gets more sympathetic to where he's now an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. His backstory is that he was a former Marine and he was a, like a sniper. So he's highly trained. But anyway, as the character goes, he gets back from the war or whatever. And he's got a wife and he's got uh, some kids. And then one day they're in like Central Park and they witness a mob hit. And the mob sees him witnessing it. And so his whole family gets killed and he gets wounded. Okay. He, he lives through it. His family dies. And so after that, he basically takes up arms and goes after the whole Costa Nostra crime family. He goes after the mob. Okay. He's the comics version of like Charles Bronson. Okay. Kind of. Or, but he's like sort of Rambo and Charles Bronson set in New York. I'm starting to understand something now. Okay. Stop me if, uh, if you go think for it. No, no, I'm what? Acting like a moron. But okay. So, okay. So there are revenge stories. There's vigilante stories. You right. could anybody could make a movie that's kind of like I'm a normal person and somebody raped my wife and killed her, right. and now I've tipped over the edge. But then, in order to run the rest of the movie, I have to have some type of training to make all of my violence acts right. very exciting. And because I, if I were of that, then I could have learned all of that over there. Right. Whereas normal slate is not going to be able to do anything. Except- well, there are plenty of movies, and we'll talk about that where they it's just the average Joe person that right. takes takes but. Well, there's three things, and that's what this whole trope is about. That these three things that seem to pop up in these vigilante veteran films and, and other media is training, right? Revenge slash justice because they had a personal loss, family, somebody died. New York City mm-hmm. seems like these three things go hand in hand with a lot, especially in these '70s movies. But even also the Punisher, the comic book. I mean, he's yeah. I feel like saying that you were a war vet is shorthand for saying this person has the ability to actually fight back. Yeah, which, you don't have so to do probable. any backstory it's about po- yeah. like right. You can just be like, oh, he was in the army. He knows how to kick ass. He knows how to kick ass, right. and especially special operations. He's a sniper, so he can kick much ass. You know, whatever. It's just, yeah. It's shorthand to explain how this person has this ability. Understood. And also, there's some baggage there too. You know, it's someone who's witnessed violence and that violence that weighs on them. But they've had enough when they, you know, they they think they left the violence behind when they get back from the war or wherever they were. And then they realize that the war kind of followed them home. So they're like, well, then we're going to fucking wage war. You know what I mean? Got it. The Punisher is very specific 70s character, too. Mm -hmm. He's been around for the last 40 years, even around in the new Daredevil series. And I'll talk about that and several movies with the Punisher. But I just wanted to bring that up that in the 70s with this vigilante vet trope that's happening and these characters that are coming out in these movies, you know, this comic book character came out right in the middle of that. And and he's based on all of these characters. So it's it's an interesting point that even comic book characters follow this trope. With that being said, I want to go back to movies because, again, we were just talking about Death Wish. If Death Wish made New York the it place for vigilante films, then this next movie I'm about to talk pretty much made it a full-fledged character in its own right. Okay. And the movie I'm talking about is... Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. Right Finally, we're yeah. getting the Taxi Driver. I know about this movie. I know you know about this yeah. movie. And half the reason why I wanted to talk about yeah, this yeah. whole topic is because of Taxi Driver. So I'd say Taxi Driver is probably like the definitive vigilante vet New York 70s movie ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, New York is definitely... I mean it. New York is like its own character in this movie. I was about to say, I mean, that's one of the best things about the movie is that it it's so distinctly American, but it's so about New York. And right. I mean, the reason why he does what he does is because he's fed up with New York and and the way that it's treating him. Yeah, it's crazy. I know it's you know you can which I feel, understand every day on my subway ride I figure, to work. I figure you would. Yeah, 
And I mean, yeah, New York is very seedy. Everything is dirty and 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 just run down. And, and you know, the only hopeful people really in this movie are the campaign people, mm-hmm. Sybil Shepherd and Albert Brooks. And they work on the campaign. They're the only optimistic people in this whole movie. Everybody else is just like New York cynicism, and they're dingy. I mean, it's just, it's such a '70s New York movie. Yeah. But for those of you who don't know, let me talk about it because it stars Robert De Niro. He's a taxi driver. Um, he works late shifts because he doesn't sleep very well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a loner. He doesn't hang out with people very much. The only people he really interacts with are the other cab drivers, and he's not really friends with them. And um, he's also on meds because he has headaches and insomnia. As time goes by, he asks this girl out, and that goes poorly, <laughs> as you know. Yeah. And then he's he ends up... not very good at that. He ends up obsessing over her while he's getting further alienated from society. He then discovers a teenage prostitute, played by Jodie Foster. Her of first course. role, yeah. Yeah, and he takes it upon himself to save her from the streets, you know, and, and then, of course, finally he acts out in this big, bloody, graphic fashion uh, against the pimp and gangsters controlling Foster's character. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's really I mean, great. it's one of my favorite. I just watched yeah. it again, but I'll, I'll use any excuse to watch Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great movie. One of the things that I actually really liked about it was that, you know, he's so against all this crime and seediness or whatever, but yeah. he's a part of it too. He's yeah. like always going to those sleazy porn theaters. Yeah. He takes Sybil Shepherd there on the first date, which Not a good she thing really know. didn't, women don't like that. No, they don't. No. I just really like the fact that he was contributing to, you know, to the, sh- the shitty parts of New York <laughs> that he was so against. Yeah. I thought that that gave it another, it gave it another level. He it wasn't didn't. just like a, a preacher that was like, no, this is all wrong. You know, no. he was, he was a part of of the problem too. Yeah, no, that, agreed. Yeah, he definitely was part of the problem, and it's interesting too because he's also part of the the wrong headed way of fixing it too. Because I remember there's a scene where the actual um, senator who's running for president hops in his cab and he talks to him and he's, "Hey, you're senator. What's his nuts? I hope you get the presidency." And he has that awkward like conversation. But they ask him, I "What do you think for Senator What's his nuts?" So vote Senator What's his nuts. This is paid for by Senator. <laughs> paid for by Senator What's his nuts. I approve of this message. So he's talking to him in the cab and they ask him, so what do you think should happen? He's like, you know what? I think the first thing I would do is clean up the city. He basically like... He does a monologue. Yeah, yeah, he does a whole monologue on washing the grime and dirt to the point where he freaks them out. Can I ask you something, Travis? Sure. What is the one thing about this country that bugs you the most? Whatever it is, you should clean up this city here because this city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. And sometimes I can hardly take it. Whatever ever becomes the president should just really clean it up. You know what I mean? Sometimes I go out and I smell it. I get headaches. It's so bad, you know? And they just like, they just never go away, you know? It's like, I think that the president should just clean up this whole mess here. He should just flush it right down the fucking toilet. Well, uh, I think I know what you mean, Travis. So he's talking about, hey, this is how this place should be cleaned up. Because he's complaining about it, saying there's a problem here that he's clearly part of. But then when he takes actions into his own hand, it's all fucked up. But here's another thing with that character. He was going to act out some way or another. Like, right. it wasn't even about cleaning up the city. He, he was going to act out violently in one yeah, form he was or another. Yeah, bu- he was building was, to a climax. Okay, so as a vigilante veteran, and that, this was another reason to watch the movie, besides that it's a great movie, is I wasn't sure if he was in the military. So when I went back through it, I, well, I wrote down some notes. I've actually got some pointers. Yeah. Some clues. And then I read some, you know, facts that I think Martin right. Scorsese... That's what, at the beginning, I was like, wait, was he a vet? But he was. But he was. He said when he gets the job he says he was a marine and that he was honorably discharged but he never says he went to war mm-hmm. he never mentions vietnam at all in the whole thing he says he's a marine and he was in the service but he never says that he was in vietnam um he has two jackets they both say have a king kong company patch 
Mm-hmm. You can actually buy the patch online. And of course, somebody cool. says, and he has naval jump wings. So the King Kong Company is a real company. I think that was in Vietnam, like mm-hmm. a real like military okay. marine group. He shaves his head in a mohawk, which I think a lot of people associated with the whole punk scene at the mm-hmm. time. But actually, in World War II, right before D-Day and other like dangerous missions, troops, airborne troops would shave their head in a mohawk. Really? Yeah, I didn't oh, know that. So okay. that's sometimes that paratroopers would do that. It's never spelled out exactly like what his military past is, and like I said, it could be Vietnam who suffers maybe PTSD or has some sort of medical issue. But but I think what I hear you saying is that like there's never a scene in the movie of where he's like, well, let me tell you about my right. past and right. why I am the he way I am. He never has any flashback yeah. scenes or anything like that. He just mentions the, the Marine Corps briefly, and it's assumed that he might be from uh, Vietnam. Right. But it's and never really kinda, spelled As out. the audience, we're like, oh, he got problems. Right. Yeah. Now, that being said, supposedly Martin Scorsese said that he was in Vietnam, even though it's only implied in the movie. He says the character was a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. But one thing I like about, among many things, The Taxi Driver, is that this character is fucked up. He's got fucked yeah. up problems. The way they do it, they do it in a very even-handed way. Like, it's not like some of these simple movies, and this is where the some of the PTSDs that I'm going to talk about. Um, some of these movies are like, oh, he was fine until he went to war, now he's all crazy, and that's not really how that works. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, I think Travis Bickle would be fucked up even if he ever went to war or not. Yeah, he's got I mean, anger management Like, issues. he had problems from the get-go. Yeah. I mean, he had real issues, and I think they did an even hand with that in presenting him. That he was just a character who had problems... And he was in an environment that didn't help. Yeah, sure. You know, he was in an unhealthy environment and he was somebody who had issues. And if you remember, as we said, he's going to act out right before he ended up shooting up a pimp and saving Jodie Foster. He was going to assassinate that president. Right, yeah. You know, he was ready yeah, that to was the shoot that guy. Plan. That was his yeah. original plan. That didn't work. So he was like, all right, well, I'm just going to I'm gonna take it out somehow. Right. So technically, he's a vigilante vet. Yeah, yeah. But also, he was just going to act out in violence in any way, shape, or form. Sure. So his like his vigilantism was more or less incidental. Yep. Anyway, I found that was interesting, and I think Taxi Driver still does a great job at conveying isolation, New York, and just just that whole gamut of uh, of emotions. Plus, just crazy, interesting characters. Yeah, overall, it's, it's great. It's one of my all time favorites. So Taxi Driver was written by Paul Schrader. He wrote the script for Taxi Driver, and supposedly he was suffering from depression and loneliness when he worked on Taxi Driver. Certainly makes sense. Which does make sense, because you can, that's it's permeates not a happy to a film. Yeah. It is not a very happy film, and you can tell the character really is suffering from those same things. Paul Schrader's follow-up film is Rolling Thunder from 1977. Did you ever see this movie? Mm-hmm, no. But Rolling Thunder touches on a lot of the same themes. It's also a vigilante vet, and it actually hits the Vietnam part a lot more. I think originally, from what I've read, Schrader when he wrote these screenplays, was trying to convey a very anti-Vietnam sentiment. Mm-hmm. Like all these, everything was anti-Vietnam everything at the time. Was, yeah. at the, and especially the early half of the 70s because the war was still going on and it wasn't getting better. So, you know, there's a lot of anti-Vietnam sentiment. And so he was trying to write that out in this vigilante story too, Rolling Thunder. Um, it got changed just like Taxi Driver got a little bit changed in the execution. So Rolling Thunder is about Major Charles Rain, who's played by William Devane. And he returns home to San Antonio with his friend and fellow soldier, who's Tommy Lee Jones, Mm -hmm. played by Tommy Lee Jones, after spending seven years as POWs in Vietnam. So they were prisoners in the Hanoi Hilton, which is the prison camp in Hanoi. Of course, home is very different than the one he left. And of course, his wife has had another relationship with the local policeman. Mm -hmm. And because she thought her husband was never getting out, thought he was going to die. So she basically got engaged to this other guy. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is the guy that's driving this dude home very awkward right yeah but yeah so so he's been you know he was a hero i mean he came back as a hero but he was a prisoner of war only to come home and his whole life's 
upended. Sure. But the town is doing this nice uh, gesture for him and Tommy Lee Jones. They're having this like ceremony and they're offering him 2,500 something silver dollars. Mm-hmm. It's for every day he spent in a Viet- like the Vietnamese prison camp. Okay. So they're like, here's your 2,000 something. Mm-hmm. It's like a severance. Package. Right. Severance yeah. thing. And it's just like, it's a nice little award. And they're trying to honor him or whatever. And that's fine. So anyway, so these thugs hear about his coins. They do a home invasion to get the coins. And actually, the uh, the, the bad guy, the leader of this gang, is uh, Roscoe from Dukes of Hazzard. Oh, Roscoe Picoltrain. Picoltrain. Yeah. So anyway, so they go in there. They they uh, beat him up to get him to tell you know where the coins are. He won't talk. They be- <laughs> they stick his hand in the garbage disposal and turn mm-hmm. it on to get him to talk. He's shot. His family's shot, and they're killed, and he's not. So then, of course, he gets Tommy Lee Jones, and they go after this gang and to get bloody revenge. And it's a huge shootout, like bigger than the one in Taxi Driver. Great. One thing that this immediately changes from Taxi Driver is you see the movie immediately establishes what happened to him in Vietnam. Sure. And it plays a part in all of his actions. So he flashes back to it. You know, he still relives it. You know, you can tell that it weighs heavy on this. So this is a movie that, you know, the war is directly interspersed with the vigilante part and the payback part. I would say even though Taxi Driver is the quintessential New York vigilante movie, movie this one directly relates more with the vigilante veteran trope a little more head-on than than taxi driver does so yeah and oh side note quentin tarantino loves this movie oh really it's his favorite movie or one of his favorite movies and because he had a production company called rolling thunder pictures i don't know if you remember mm-hmm. it but it was i think it's defunct now but it was it was named after this movie and it was this picture company that he released, like Switchblade Sisters and a lot of his low-budget sure, sure, movies, yeah. but I think it went under. So closing out the 70s, there are plenty of movies that touch on the theme of vigilantism. The Dirty Harry series, which kind of opened that whole trope of the cop that plays by his own rules mm-hmm. and will break, bend the laws to get the job done. Right. So there's some vigilante stuff, but not necessarily vigilante vet. And there's other movies like Vigilante Forest from 1976 and one called Black Oak Conspiracy from 1977. Both are vigilante movies that have actually veteran Vietnam vets in them. But these fall more into the fight against the man type of ideal like Billy Jack. Sure. And then the um, my family's been murdered and I'm going to get revenge and seek justice on my own like Taxi Driver Rolling Thunder. Moving to the 80s, we see the trend of vigilante vet films continue, but more in the vein, like I said, in the vein of Taxi Driver, where somebody's, you know, they've come back from war and they've been wronged, as I mentioned before. One of the prominent ones, and this movie's ridiculous, is Exterminator from 1980. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever seen the cover, it's got this muscly dude with a motorcycle helmet and a flamethrower on the cover. It's like the most, like, 80s looking thing ever. I actually love the cover of the movie. But it's about uh, this guy who's a, a Vietnam vet. His name's John Eastland. He comes back. The, he plays the exterminator. When a group of thugs like paralyze his friend, he becomes like a vigilante. He starts embarking on this mission to cleanse New York City. Sounds familiar. And kill organized crime. And it's really, really violent. And there's one scene where he like basically lowers some dude in a meat grinder and shows like, Ooh, nice. coming. yeah, so pretty, pretty impressive. And other people he just torches with a flamethrower. Mm-hmm. So that's. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Mm-hmm. But very 80s. And again, another shitty New York where he's going to take the law in his own hands. And then the exterminator had some sequels too. Exterminator 2 and then no shitty you know the next film though I need to talk about is again probably one of the most important movies of the 80s definitely for veterans but probably one of the most important movie of of the 80s considering the trend that it started and that's the 1982 movie version of First Blood John Rambo a drifter just passing through their town I want you to book this gentleman for vagrancy resisting arrest carrying a concealed weapon they knew he was innocent and they didn't give a damn. John Rambo, 
One man who's been pushed too far. He was hunted. Trapped. There he is! Forced to fight back. Don't push it. Don't push it. I'll give you a war you won't believe. Sylvester Stallone. This time, he's fighting for his life. First Blood. Film stars Sylvester Stallone as the quintessential character John Rambo. And if the book was popular in the 70s, then the movie blew it out of the fucking park. Right. Uh, First Blood became a very popular movie. It was a big movie. Stallone was just coming off the success of Rocky. And here he is in this action movie where he plays, you know, the loner who's, you know, seeking payback for being fucked with. As I discussed before, you know, there's some major differences in this book. The book, Rambo Kills People. And this movie, he only kills one person and it's out of self-defense. Like if those were heli- a rocket, this helicopter, because the guy's sniping him and some dude falls out. Mm-hmm. Where the book it was even-handed, where told why the police chief was doing what he's doing and why Rambo was doing what he's doing, this movie was firmly like in, you know, his point of view where he was just minding his own business and this asshole sheriff, you know, was fucking with him. Right. And so, of course, they pushed him too far and now he's getting payback. A couple interesting things about First Blood, if you've ever seen, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, is that it's sort of kind of like a horror movie where you hang around with the monster a little bit, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Because, I mean, you sympathize with them, but there's some scenes where there's these sheriffs in the woods looking for him. It just kind of shows them, and then he, like, pops out and fucks with them. You know, it's sort of... So it's kind of like there's some horror movie elements of it, even though you're on his side. It's it's actually a good movie. It's I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene at the end, too. Okay, so he doesn't kill anybody. Finally, he's cornered in this town, and the colonel, just like in the book, is trying to talk him down. But instead of shooting him at the end, he finally does talk him down. But there's a scene in this movie, and I think this is the reason why Stallone did it, where he breaks down and cries and talks about how he that he misses his friends and it's, Vietnam was all fucked up. And it's, it's it's a pretty strong scene. I'll put it on the site. But you don't get any of that with subsequent Rambo movies. We'll talk about that. But that's First Blood was sort of unique in its own thing. And they didn't plan any sequels at the time. Right. But then, of course... There were several sequels, and this thing blew up to be, you know, Rambo became synonymous of, like, Americanism and fight, which is weird if you think about it, but we'll talk about that. Before we move on to Rambo 2, there's a movie called Ruckus. I don't know. I had to bring this up, but only because it's uh, it came out before the first Blood movie, but it's about this uh, Vietnam vet who's in this town, and, of course, the, they, the police fuck with him, and then he goes on a rampage. But it stars Dirk Benedict from the old Battlestar Galactica show and Linda Blair, your favorite. Mm, so, I don't know. It's called Ruckus. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube, but it's like the, the low-rent version of First Blood. Gotcha. Anyway, so back to Rambo. So although First Blood was a success, its sequels, Rambo, First Blood Part Two, really cemented the status in pop culture. I mean, that's where Rambo became Rambo, and that became a verb. Like, I'm going to go Rambo on your ass. Is, it meant something. Mm-hmm. And so the sequel, of course, is um, Rambo's in jail from the first movie. He's given a choice that if he goes into Vietnam to try to take pictures to see if there's any actual POWs still left there, then if he accepts his dangerous mission, they'll drop all of his charges. He'll be free to go. They'll absolve him or whatever. So he accepts it and he goes and drops in there. And of course, Rambo being Rambo, he finds somebody and he breaks him out. But then as he's about to go get picked up, they say, oh, he's found somebody. They, they leave him there and he gets captured. And then, of course, he escapes again and he comes back. So I bring this up because, one, it was a hugely popular movie. But two, it's sort of still it's an interesting take on this on this whole vigilante vet thing, because what you see is a shift here where you've got the Rambo character. He's victimized of Vietnam, whatever, forgotten by his country. Mm-hmm. But instead of fighting for justice in like a city against crime, he's like fighting for justice in American policy. It's like he's re-winning Vietnam 
Vietnam, sort of in his own way. You know, okay. he's, he's seeking justice for the injustices that were done in Vietnam against our soldiers, but also justice uh, against the bureaucracy that allowed soldiers to lose. Because in this movie, it had the bureaucracy of, oh, Rambo found somebody. We can't acknowledge that. So they left him to die so that he never could bring the truth out. That's how okay. he got captured. Sure, sure. So in other words, it's a bigger scale payback instead of just like I'm fighting crime in New York City it, for justice. I'm fighting the shitty American policy of the 70s and dealing with this war. It's sort of like I'm winning this war. And actually the Rambo movie sort of opened up this whole subgenre of this time we win movies. There's a lot of movies that came out after that that had that same basic plot, like Missing in Action series that was um, the canon film series starring Chuck Norris. Mm -hmm. It offered the same type of thing where he went back to Vietnam for some reason and killed a bunch of Viet Cong. And then a a movie called Uncommon Valor with uh, Gene Hackman, same thing. Vietnam was treated as a sort of a fantasy to go back and retroactively win the war. Mm -hmm. That's what this Rambo movie sort of became. And so it was that whole bigger picture. So it definitely was a split from the the regular vigilante trope of what you would see from Vietnam vets. Mm -hmm. So it sort of fractured that. And we'll we'll go back to that. But the next thing I want to bring up, though, and I think several reasons. One, because it's just the the way the trend is at the time, where that was sort of falling out of favor of the guy that was going to go and get payback. But also because of a real-life incident that occurred, which was in New York, and that was the Bernard Getz vigilante. Do you, you know about this? Uh, Bernie Getz. Oh, was he the guy in the subway? He was the guy in the was, subway. He was packing. Yeah, he had a gun. He was in the subway, and he shot and wounded four assailants. They weren't really assailants. Well, I don't know. Supposedly, they were going to rob him, or he thought they were going to rob him. I don't know. There, there's a lot there, yeah. because looking at the case, some... I, I think, think they so. were fucking with him. But they might have been fucking with him. I don't think they were, like, or, mugging him, or... And yeah, and I don't. that's the problem. You know, the, he was charged with attempted murder, and... Um, reckless endangerment and things like that. And, and of course, firearm offenses because you couldn't have guns in New York or whatever. He was dubbed the subway vigilante. And, I mean, of course, all these death wish type of comparisons. Yeah. People because loved him, though, because he did. was on the lam for a minute, wasn't he? I don't remember. I mean, he ended up getting away, but I think he ended up turning himself in. Right. But I think that, yeah, people were, like, on his side. He was, like, one of those pe- that Everybody was really frustrated with the amount of violence and especially how shitty the subways were. And people wanted him to succeed, you know? It brought out that little human right. truth of us that everybody that wanted to just pull out a gun and just take and matters just into their own hands. own hands yeah. and not be victimized. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think, and so there was an appeal to that. There are many who believe that the Bernhard Getz shooting of four men on a subway two and a half years ago was a tragedy waiting to happen. On one side, Bernhard Getz, previous mugging victim, a man determined never to be mugged or robbed again, a man who never left his apartment without carrying a loaded gun, an unlicensed loaded gun. Facing him, four young men, all with criminal records, on their way to break into video machines. Troy Canty approaches Bernhard Getz asking for $5. Getz says it wasn't the fear of robbery that scared him, but the look in Canty's eyes. From Getz's confession to New York authorities. I wanted to kill those guys. I wanted to maim those guys. I wanted to make them suffer in every way I could. This was in 1984, and if you look at it by mid-decade, the city had reported crime rate over 70% higher than the rest of the U.S. Like, mm-hmm. New York was very violent. Was you know, there were two homicides, 18 violent crimes, and 65 property thefts reported per 10,000 people. I was looking at a crime stat wow. at the time. You can kind of see, I'm not saying it's right, but people would identify with, like you said, somebody taking taking it back, taking back the streets. So that, it was like a real-life Death Wish movie. Yep. You know, and, but again, there was fallout from that, too. There was the argument, well, you shouldn't have to take 
matters in your own hands, and New York's a shithole. Yeah, yeah. And something needs to be done about it. Also, in the cinematic trend, I think people wanted to steer away from glamorizing that because that's the thing too so hollywood got a little gun shy so to speak when bernard gets actually happened you got to remember they always bring up did movies like this influence it did he right, you know sure. did death wish or taxi driver influence bernard gets so hollywood gets a little shy on that because they don't want to be held responsible course, yeah. so i think that's why that pushed the vigilante vet trend away and of course then you've got rambo who's a different focus where vets are badasses or be, you know become this whole idea of americanism where you're this unstoppable person with a gun that's going to right wrongs and kill a bunch of commies mm -hmm. basically and actually so rambo 3 came out in 88 and that was essentially rambo in afghanistan mm -hmm. and he he was helping the future Taliban fight off the Soviets was basically what that was about. Got it. Okay. So, yeah. But, yeah, again, the Rambo character became fighting communism. And, of course, like the Reagan administration, like, totally embraced this Rambo thing, mm -hmm. which is weird if you think about it because you've got this disturbed vet who's got problems, who, like, shot up a town in the first movie, and then now it's like, we're going to Rambo. Right, and now you know, he's like a political, like a yeah, like a weird American... Like icon, yeah, political like, icon. Weird. I'm reminded of a recent, very popular movie. And in the spirit of Rambo, let me tell you, we're going to win this time. Also, another thing in the 80s that we have to attention to is that we started seeing a lot of movies that were being very reflective about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So you saw Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, Full Metal Jacket. So these were like yeah. examinations of Vietnam. So the whole vigilante vet thing sort of fell on the wayside. Right, it didn't it, fit in anymore. It was replaced by Rambo as the, the hulking shoot -em up guy. And Vietnam as a topic was covered elsewhere. Right, sure, sure. So one other thing here that I got to talk about that I think also helped kill that vigilante vet character type was actually a TV show called The A-Team mm -hmm. that ran from 1983 to 1987. You remember The A-Team? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so The A-Team was a very cartoonish type of show. It was for kids, which is weird. But it was about these guys who were in Vietnam, and but they were convicted of some war crime that they didn't commit some crime. And then they get thrown in prison, military prison, but they escape. And now they're soldiers of fortune helping people out. Mm -hmm, so they're sure. like, for hire to help you. You know, Maybe you can find the A-Team. And Mr. T was in it. That's You probably remember that, whatever. This was basically the vigilante vet the show because it had these veterans who were, you know, they're former special forces guys. They are thrown into prison. Mm -hmm. But now they're helping other people out by, you know, fighting for justice for the common right, man. Right. And actually, the A-Team sort of closer to Billy Jack than it is like to the taxi driver because Billy Jack is fighting against the man. The A-Team did that too. Like a lot of times it'd be like they'd stop somebody uh, like a, a corrupt real estate investor yeah, from stealing what, people, threatening that's the people. The only to thing steal. that I remember was yeah. I feel like they were all doing that every week. There, some people are being threatened, and the A team would come and like would weld something together and stop right. this evil real estate developer from getting these poor people's land. I feel like yeah. they did that every week. Mm -hmm. So again, that effectively fucking killed the whole vigilante vet thing, and now it becomes like a cartoon. It right. becomes like a kids thing, and of course they're not sitting there waking up in the middle of the night. You know, the A-team doesn't have problems. Right. But I want to go back to movies, too, also, because it kind of comes back full circle, too, because there's sequels to Death Wish, mm -hmm. like Death Wish 2. I want to talk about Death Wish 3. Mm -hmm. Death Wish 3 came out in 85, and it's like a cult classic because it's fucking ridiculous, mm -hmm. by the way. You need to see it. But it's also victim to the whole post-Rambo thing, too, which is interesting. So in the 70s Death Wish, here's 
this guy who his family's killed. He goes in the subway and starts shooting people with a pistol. By the time you get to Death Wish 3, he's like killing every fucking gang member in New York City mm-hmm, with a right. 50 caliber machine gun, which mm-hmm. he really kind of does. Because that's post-Rambo with a huge machine gun killing a bunch of fucking thugs, right? right? Again, they're still multi-culty gang members, so there's that. Thank multi-culty? Multi-culty, yeah. So <laughs> at least they can, you know, diversity. Mm-hmm. But he shoots a, a bunch of them. Yeah. But this movie is so fucking ridiculous. And if you thought like that Death Wish 1... <laughs> like advocated being a vigilante death wish three just to, i'll put it in perspective there's a scene where he, sh- he he has this big long like magnum automatic fucking gun mm-hmm. he shoots this got purse thief in the back uh-huh. first of all he th- shoots a purse thief who's running away in the back right, right? it's not sure. self-defense like, right yeah yeah and second as soon as he does that like the whole neighborhood comes out like applauds right like they all come clap that yeah. he killed this purse thief right in it's broad like, daylight in the middle of the street and right. they're all like oh he done yay he right. did it this person deserved to die this is the yeah. most like pro kill all the kids in your neighborhood because they're little thugs and everyone will be happy yeah so death wish 3 is nuts but again it just shows how far you've come from you know the the somber trying to take this the subject somewhat seriously right. although exploitively to like cartoon violence post rambo vigilantism just to close up the 80s, there really isn't much after that. There's really not a lot of vigilante stuff that's really worthwhile um, in that. As far as the you know the 90s through early 2000s, there's not a lot. There's no vigilante. First of all, there's no war. I mean, by then, right. everybody who's in Vietnam have aged out of the action hero time frame. And, and two, there's this crime actually was getting better. You know, yeah. Between the mid-90s to 2000s, New York became a better place. Yeah, much better. But that being said, in the 2000s, there have been some on-screen vigilantes movies. There's been sort, there was sort of like a, a revival. Uh, there was Death Sentence with Kevin Bacon, which was Death Sentence was actually based on the book sequel that the author of Death Wish wrote. So he wrote okay. Death Sentence and Kevin Bacon is in the movie version of that, but it was forgettable. Mm-hmm. And then the brave one, which Taxi Driver's child star Jodie Foster was I in. That. Where mm-hmm. didn't she like give me my fucking dog and she shot somebody like somebody killed her husband and took her dog? Yeah. Her husband was uh what's his name from um from Lost? Um Saeed from Lost. Oh, okay. Yeah, she she took the law into her own hands to go find this person that yeah. But running parallel to that is when he started seeing superhero movies in the 2000s, mm-hmm. starting, I think, really predominantly with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2002. Right. And then as you went on, you had the Christopher Nolan Batman movies in 2005 and beyond, where they were gritty, urban, shitty, you know, trying to bring back right. that gritty, urban feel. So you're saying that they were vigilantes, but they were superheroes. But they were superheroes. And, right. and I think that's where the vigilante trend had went. Right. Sure. So so you've got the vigilante trend going towards superhero. Now it's all fucking superheroes. Right. Yeah. You know, and so that's, I think that's where our vigilantes are. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, no, that a, certainly makes sense. Another thing in the 2000s, all the war movies are movies that dealt with war vets were usually anti-Bush policy movies. Mm-hmm. Home of the Brave, well, even Hurt Locker. It was more of dealing with the war. It wasn't like about a veteran doing something. Right, sure. So much. And when they were about a veteran, it was like that they were all fucked up back home or whatever. They were very anti-policy movies. And that's, I'm just saying, that's kind of where their focus was. Right, sure. And then everything else was just vigilantes via superheroes. Now, recently, as I mentioned, the Daredevil TV show, mm-hmm. which is on Netflix, again, a superhero, uh, they brought back the Punisher. Now, the Punisher in the 2000s, they were trying to bring back that character in his own film series. And they had one in 2004 starring Thomas Jane. And then another one, 2008, starring somebody else. To varying degrees of success, it didn't really catch on. They couldn't make a franchise. So they right. brought the character back to TV, and he's fighting in New York City. He's a vigilante. But it looks like they're doing a good job with it. So the Punisher, that's all we really got today mm-hmm. as a vigilante vet is the Punisher, who 
originally started in the 70s and now he's part of a TV show. So that whole trope is sort of gone right now. Right, sure. And I think it's just because New York City, as far as representing America as a whole, again, New York City crime has fell in New York and has been steadily wish there would be more crime there and just like excite the place up a little bit right so money and whitewash now and a lot of somebody go to new york please and kill someone for my amusement (laughs) please just shoot someone yeah just you know what just come on make new york great again kill somebody so i'm fascinated again that's why i brought up this whole thing it's just that it was such a thing of its time the vigilante vet bringing the war back home yeah they fought for their country overseas and then came back and America was a shithole mm-hmm. and they were going to do what's right and take it back and whatever. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's such a thing of its time, but it lasted for a while. Yeah. Of course, then it sort of faded away. Yeah. Well, there'll always be vigilantes in film. Sure. I mean, yeah. that's, that trend will come back around again and hopefully right. I'm ready for the superhero thing to be kind of on I its am way. too. That's, that's been the shorthand for vigilante movies. That's what's filled in the, the gap of vigilante movies is, is superheroes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm hoping that the Batman versus Superman, was that it? Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, I'm hoping that when we look back on this that we go, well, that was the beginning of the end. No, yeah. I'm ready for a new thing now. I'm ready it's for a new thing. It's been fun. I'm ready for a new right. thing. Death Wish 6. Yeah. I'm ready for mm-hmm. some more of that. Make it happen. So anyway, what are your thoughts? Good. Super, super interesting. Again, I knew nothing about this. I think the only movie that I've seen in any of that was Taxi Driver. I also, stu- stupidly, apparently, because you would have mentioned it, but I thought, am I, maybe I might get this wrong, was the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Alyssa Milano. Commando. Was that Commando? Yeah. That's not a vigilante. No, but that's a one of those post-Rambo movies. You know, right. the Commando guy who's kick-ass and, of course, has big machine guns and mm-hmm. can take out a fucking army. That was... But he was an actual... He was in a different... Con- I don't under, I don't even know enough no, to No, no, no. I think the character... They don't really say much, but he, he must have been some sort of, like, CIA... It, they always say CIA, like, operative, like that's a thing. Right. Or that, that somehow it works that way. It's funny. But yeah, I guess that's what he was. He was some badass. And you assume he was like he did special ops things and nom and mm-hmm. other hot spots in the world and he was like just oh, he's this badass dude and so then of course other people in that community kidnapped Alyssa milano and showed him who's the boss <laughs> Get yeah. it? and then uh then he went and shot them all up and remember when i said i'd kill you last right. i lied and all that okay shit. got yeah, it yeah. all right and here's my next question okay so since Forrest Gump was a veteran mm-hmm. and he when he got upset he ran all the way across America right. is he a vigilante vet no because I, that he took he took matters into his own hands no I tell you what but that if was he, a vigilante move in by, every town that he went by if he ended up killing a bunch of multi-culti gang members uh-huh. while he did it then yes and actually I would love to have seen Forrest yeah, Gump well, run that, from town to town and just shoot shooting so, yeah well we can incorporate that into the make America New York great again make New York great again yes get a sequel with Forrest Gump, he Shooting runs in there people. and shoots people. I'm sold. We've, we've You're welcome, this. Hollywood. We've got this under All control. Right, yeah. We're going to write it up. We're going to get Paul Schrader to write up. We have that grit for taxi driver yeah, type grit. It's going to be great. All right. That's all I got to say yeah, about this topic. I'm, I'm happy. Great. All right. And thanks for listening. Yeah. We'll see you next week. All right. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can view links to some of the movies we talk about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources, as well as Bad Movie Monday, our recommendation for the worst of the worst films every Monday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. Thank you.